This podcast is made possible by ATO Records, home of Grammy-nominated artists Brittany Howard, Black Pumas, Emily King, and Danny Barnes. Learn more at atorecords.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. We recently spoke with Turkish psych rock band Alton Goon's bassist and producer, Jasper Verhulst, and their recording engineer, Jasper Haluk, for a segment of our discussion podcast. For this episode of the Tape Op Podcast, we dig deep into the history of the band and pull back the curtain on their recording process. Enjoy! Backing up a little bit, since we have not spoken with you before for Tape Op, you're a Dutch band, but you're playing Turkish psych rock music. And I was just curious if you could give us a little background on how you came to embrace this genre and make a make a career and a band out of it. I mean, was this something that you had around the house growing up, or was there a scene in, in Amsterdam that uh, kind of sparked your interest? Uh, not really. It really comes from record collecting, in my case, just going to record shops a lot. And I saw this record where we're going to talk about a little bit later, the Zelda Bajan uh, album, the reissue by Finders Keepers. And I was kind of intrigued by the, the cover and then I bought it and I loved it. And that really turned me on to... Uh, the, the Turkish psychedelic folk rock uh, scene from the the 70s. Yeah, I mean, it's a... You peel back the layers on the genre. I mean, it, it, it has an extremely rich history, and, and, you know, it was sort of a sort of a dangerous, dangerous gig to get into in a lot of ways. I mean, Zelda herself was imprisoned for playing this music. It's like, obviously, it was, uh, it was reaching people and and uh made the government fearful of the the power of music you know i guess so yeah but a lot of it was also just pop music i guess there were some some protest songs and some lyrics that that the government at the time didn't like but a lot of the music was also just really widely appreciated pop music right Um, it wasn't like all from the underground. It's really, um, you know, usually there was a, a team of producers and session guys behind it. And a lot of the songs that they were playing um, also sell that budget on. They were like really old folk songs or more recent folk songs. It's kind of the same what we're doing now, like really playing our own interpretations of traditional Turkish music and folk songs. I mean, if I start tried to start a Turkish psych rock band in Seattle, I think it might be might be challenging to find people that really understood the genre and had the a understood the genre, but then also could actually play it, you know, because there's it's very it's very unique stylistically. So how yeah, did you definitely. how did you end up finding a collection of people that I mean, it sounds like I mean, it's not a, a tangential reinterpretation of this it's very authentic what you guys do and in, in you know to my ears 
Yeah, but that's because we have two Turkish members and they, they grew up with this music. They they know all this, these songs, these folk songs from their childhood. They really grew up with it and they understand it. And uh, the rest of us, we, we, we wouldn't be able to do something like that without actual Turkish members in the band. And for, for, for instance, Erdinj, who is playing the the sauce and he plays synthesizers and he sings. Uh, he really grew up with this music and also playing this music. He was playing weddings with his dad, Turkish weddings, when he was 10 already, I think. And he, he learned all types of Turkish instruments. And he actually also already had this idea for, for, for a band like this for quite a long time. But uh, he was struggling finding people for that as well. And then I guess we found we all found each other. But yeah, this is really something you, that would be hard to do without Turkish uh, musicians in the band. Other Jasper, um, you know, when you're trying to capture this, I mean, there seemed the, the uh, Alten Gun is, uh, is primarily it feels like a really like a live band experience. So are you trying to when you record the music? Is there anything special that's going into it to try to capture the feeling um, of the band and spirit of the band in terms of setup, gear, microphones, process? I mean, what's your what's your approach to recording the band? Um, I think yeah, there's definitely um, a way with it. Um, I recorded a couple of couple of things with the band not every not their whole catalog but i i recorded kind of the debut single then the second full lp then i assisted with the third then they went electronic and i didn't have anything to do with this and then when we did the last record we were basically back in the old um setup in a different place with different equipment but similar philosophy um what we did I mean, when you listen to those records, it's not like we're trying to copy an exact kind of replica of what they did, but the run, like the love for this type of arranging and uh, production runs very deep. So just to at least to feel like you're doing justice to the way it expresses emotion is, is very important, at least to me. And uh, we captured the band live, just playing all the main instruments together if possible, uh, capturing vocals on the go as well, which usually end up being redone. But for some tracks, they were the live take. Um, when I was recording in my own, like the first single we did in my own, uh, like one room recording place, um, it was live to a track Tascom 58 uh, half-inch tape uh, recorder. And then, um, yeah, just very basic. I, I I just acquired basically enough to make a recording of a full band. So I had a multi-track recorder console, like an old Series 2 Soundcraft console, um, BX20 Reverb, Space Echo. Um, that's about it. And then uh, Revox. Uh, reel to reel, the B seventy seven, and uh, and a couple of mics and stuff that I used to use uh, live, because I started mainly as a live engineer, and I gradually grew into the 
into the the studio um, studio habit. <laughs> um, and so, but it was very live and very minimal, trying to make do with uh, you know doing drums to one track on the on the tape straight when you're recording. I did do some bounces at some point just to free up space, you know, for a synth solo or a backing vocal, maybe here and there. But luckily, there's very little harmonies in this music, so that's easier. But it is basically all musicians having one track on the A track and then just trying to capture it as good as I could on the way in and then uh, and then mixing that. Um, obviously, a lot of spill just because it was in one room with uh, hardly any separation. And um, so, yeah, on a pretty kind of ghetto style in a way, I mean, I... I I realize that's a very wide uh, description to some. To some, this might be fancy already. But when we started out, it was very minimal. <clears throat> and and as we grew, like the second LP, we did the Getcha record, the blue one. We recorded in a pretty beautiful studio here in Harlem, where I live, between Amsterdam and the sea. And uh, we captured it there. But I brought all the all the particular equipment that I, I thought I needed. I brought it over there. They had a, a wonderful uh, API 16.8, so that captured a lot of the the main sources, but I brought some uh, some little mixers as well. Brought my BX20, brought the tape recorder, everything, because they didn't have a tape set up at the time. Um, and then uh, we mixed it in my place, and then it went to my uh, MPEX 440C, uh, two track for the mix down and I try to keep it very analog I think for Getcha we actually I backed it up in the computer and actually figured out that the console was talking a little nicer to the converter than it was to the tape recorder so everything sounded a little bigger I think something with impedance or something anyway I thought okay I'll, I'll, I won't take it as a complete uh, um in a way, dogma to keep it analog, but I'm trying to stay close to this mentality at least, and it, it has served us well, I think. I mean, I, I think it's a bolder and it's a more mature uh, stance to, to actually commit. I mean, if you're summing drums to one track, you're you're making some choices, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty scary. I was very lucky. I mean, all the drummers that have played in Altingun are really great, and they sound great, and Everybody has a very, like a, a big focus on making their instrument sound the way they want it to sound. So obviously I tried to add more color or more. I like the sound of compression, for instance, which, you know, causes all sorts of trouble for all sorts of things. <laughs> but it has a, a certain touch that I like. Um, uh, but everybody's really keen to make it sound good already. And that makes it very easy, relatively, I think. <clears throat> but for me, it's actually easier to have very limited options because otherwise I get completely lost. So um, I like to have this kind of interaction in the moment with the equipment and the sonics. And I think the one of the best things about it also is that um, the band will get something in their in their monitors that is very close to what you envision for the record. And so that also 
makes it easier, I think, to interpret your playing or <clears throat> assess dynamics and intention hmm. a lot more yeah, than definitely. when you're actually envisioning how it might sound by the time it's mixed, you know? Um, so that's something I, I really like about it, too. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, it's an important point, and I think it's a, it's a, a tactic that, you know, people would like to try to employ, you know? I mean, I think how many times, I mean, this doesn't sound like it's often with you guys, but I can tell you countless times that I've been in the studio as a young musician, you know, coming up and trying to make records and learn the studio and actually being a musician and a player in the and just having it sound just awful and having the drums come back sound just flat and people say, "Oh, don't worry, it's it's going to be mixed later." And but it just never really it never really felt good, you know? It was sort of like, "Well, I'll play my parts and try to hack through this horrible headphone mix." And you know, it's gotten a little better over time with individual monitor mixing and and you know, as the as yeah. the systems have gotten improved, but it was horrible. I mean, never sounded like a record. I mean, and so, uh, especially for a, a for a band that's so, so has such a live focus, and uh, it seems like the only way to go. You're going to lose something otherwise. Yeah, I, at least I think so. Although I must add that even for the stuff I didn't work on, they've done electronic records that sound really great as well and they've been just you know they can be pieced together or whatever workflow works for that process and it can be very spread out and unconnected in terms of moments when things are made or how they are made those kind of things so i think they they have a way with almost every genre they touch in a very uh, very nice way but personally when i get involved i there's nothing more i like than than i like more i mean than um just just capturing them in a room together and uh if they're in the zone if they're in the zone together then <clears throat> this it's very hard to beat so was the record that you guys did that was more electronic was that the yole record mm -hmm. yeah that one is kind of like a half electronic half uh live band but then after that, we did another record, which is just on Bandcamp, and it's like a charity album we did for like a nature protection organization. And uh, that's like fully electronic. There's vocals and there's some balama on there, but the rest is just programmed drums and synthesizers. And was that uh, done as a as an exercise or, or out of necessity because of the uh, pandemic? that's kind of how it started because of the pandemic that that a couple of us started demoing from home and uh working with some drum computers and synthesizers and it was very easy to to send each other stuff uh, over a long distance and it was kind of a challenge also and for a while it, it felt good to kind of step away from uh the initial thing that we started doing, which was like really focused on this Turkish 70s psychedelic folk rock sound. And it was interesting to see how we could combine that also with all sorts of other more electronic genres that we also like. Um, but then for this last album, we 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 definitely wanted to wanted to go back to to the roots and just play live as a band and 
like how we started. Yeah, I mean, the first track on the record, at least the EP-ish thing that I have, it really has like this Pink Floyd vibe. It's got some pedal steel. Um, mm. Was that a new introduction? Uh, we actually used that on the on the, the electronic album as well for mm. one song, the, the pedal steel. Yeah, which was an interesting combination, I think, like synthesizers, 808 drums, very minimal, and then the, the pedal steel. Uh, and Turkish folk music was kind of a weird combination of uh, yeah. of flavors and genres. Um, but yeah, pedal steel is great. And I, I think it works beautifully in, in this, um, it, together with Turkish music. I'm not sure if it has been done uh, a lot in the 70s, actually. I don't think they used a lot of pedal steel. Um, well, it caught my ear. I I, was, yeah. I I thought it was like really interesting and fresh. And I, I mean, I don't think that there is a more expressive lyrical stringed instrument, honestly, than pedal steel. I mean, even no, more than yeah. even more than you know cello or violin or whatever. There's just and it it suits itself because of its uh, fretless uh, nature to microtonal mm. elements. And I think people's idea of pedal steel is country music from the south in texas and etc but you know you listen to somebody like daniel lanois play it and it's so incredibly expressive and emotional you know and i feel like mm. that's that's how you guys are using it yeah that, it can work really well in like more ambient kind of music as well i mean i'm, I'm curious about the the electronic um integration and and how that um you know the same people are making this music i always i always love the idea of people using instruments that maybe they're less not familiar with or less capable of using but presenting their ideas with different voices and mm. you know sort of the the end output i mean you have talented people you can really put any anything in their hands right and they're going to make something that's interesting yeah it can be very interesting if you you're kind of outside your musical comfort zone but still being able to uh, be creative um, and i think like some of us are pretty um schooled and they're really good on their instruments but a couple of us they like for instance myself i never had like any lessons on bass and my technique is terrible i really gotta have an <laughs> idea before i can play it you know like if if you would put me in a jam session i would probably not be very good you know like i'm not one with my instrument in in that classic kind of way like i couldn't play in a jazz band or whatever but still, it works, I guess. And that's the, the, the interesting thing for me about electronic music is that you basically don't need any skills. <laughs> you just need ideas. You know, you can program everything, you can work with MIDI. And it's not always good, of course. And I'm really happy that not all music is like that. You know, that there's also music that really comes from your hands and is really in the moment. But there's so many ways of approaching music, I think. And um, I'm happy that we're playing a kind of genre where we can just do whatever we, we want, basically, and we don't need to be 
virtuoso uh, instrumentalists uh, or very good synth programmers we can be a little bit in between and do a little bit of both or whatever and uh, just use our ears and if something sounds good to us then we just go with it i guess what when you did that the electronic you know more electronic music focused um was that all analog synths and still sort of an analog capture process or was it more computer based or in a daw Mm, yeah both we we used a lot of midi but uh we sent the midi to uh, analog synths and drum computers mostly I think that this idea between the, the 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 computer recording and the analog, I mean, it's, you know, capture process that um, you were, you know, you were talking about recording this record on eight tracks. I mean, that it changes the process so much. It mm. change it changes. You know, if you know going into it that that that's what you're doing, it changes. It I've, to me anyway, it changes the parts. There's not. It, you know, unless you're doing a ton of overdubs, if you know you're not doing a ton of overdubs, that changes your your parts and how you play, yeah, how, how the band seems... fits together. So, yeah. w- was your time spent in the studio like how long did it take to record the record? Were you there weeks, days? The last one? Yeah. Yeah, days, I guess. How many days were we I think, in the studio? I think we spent about nine or ten or something. Yeah, 12? probably twelve or ish it seems little actually quite little i i thought it was longer but probably wasn't some somewhere around 12 days i think yeah it was less, less than, than two. two weeks i'm sure and we skipped a couple of days and the first two and a half days we go basically only were tweaking sound sound checking yeah yeah crazy so yeah, actual fun. recording songs was basically eight days or something true yeah yeah and we we did record yeah mm-hmm. yeah 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 and we we tracked this record the last one we did to 24 track to be fair um that was done in a studio in amsterdam schenk studio uh run by jan schenk and he um he has a trident atb uh console as a main hub in the studio and then we used a lot of heritage audio Neve clones uh, as inputs, and but uh, that was recorded to an MCI JH16, but the 24 version. Uh, so there was a bit more elaborate options and more stuff being recorded in stereo and those kind of things. <laughs> Separate snare and kick and and overheads, I think. So not everything to committed on the spot but still i mean for modern standards i guess very good yeah, so i assume that when you were talking about recording drums to one track that you were just summing but like you just literally used one mic no uh for okay. the um, no i've actually always stuck with kind of a bit of an elaborate glenn johnsy setup with the d12 on the kick usually something on the snare like a 57 and then uh, two calls as overheads but a bit more kind of Tom focused because with all the compression and the crunch and all that kind of stuff, it it usually sucks in your cymbals so loudly, even if if you play them very delicately, it's it's easy to uh, 
to get too much symbol. So I'm always a bit like finding my way between the symbols and then I get the symbols as a bonus mostly. Um, <laughs> and then uh, those, so it would be those four mics and then just, you know, EQing, balancing, whatever it needs. And then I usually squeeze it through um, UBK, Fetso, uh, compressor on the way into the tape. And then it's very close to done. Uh, also, yeah, har there's hardly anything you can do afterwards, almost like mastering. Um, but uh, so that was like the, the first singles and the second record that was fully committed to one track for drums. But for the last one, I think we had kick snare and stereo overheads uh, on separate tracks. Yeah. Wow. Even recorded the plate in the room. Yeah, yeah, really wild. <laughs> well, okay. actually, I had an actually I had a, a fifth mic. Also, I was juggling a bit in overhead overhead world. Um, yeah, it got very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of the setup in the in the room, obviously, when we, when you set up a, a band to play live um, in the studio, I mean, it's, it's going to present itself visually different than uh, because you're dealing with polar patterns and, and rejections and things like that. Did So how, how did you guys set the band up live uh, in the room to play? Um, Usually I'm, I'm close to the drums. Yeah. I like to but be close yeah, to the drums while playing. Jasper is usually also... Well, actually, we I think we gave just you some eye. kind of amplifier. Yeah, but I think we had some amplifier going <clears throat> just to have some room spill of the drums, just not to have it... Ah. Mac oh, yeah. dry in in your face to have it sit mm. a bit easier in the in the space, but I don't think we we didn't record the the speakers. Um, it was just uh, basically a monitor with spill in the room, and then yeah yeah I mean it depends for the session, but in general it was uh, basically everybody in one room except. In the last record for the singers and the keyboardists and and uh, Balama Sal's uh, player Erdinch, because we wanted to try if we could get live vocals as well. So the last studio <clears throat> had two separate booths that that were really well isolated. So we put up a U60, I think a U67 for Erdinch, and I think an M49 for Merva. Um, so pretty sensitive mics. And so they were, they were behind glass, but they were basically all in a circle still, uh, in terms of position. Percussion a little further away. Um, <clears throat> I mean, yeah, for the second LP we did, there was quite some space, and it's kind of like a high, lively room, so you get a lot of reverb. And I put the the percussion and the drums pretty far apart actually so with the idea i don't know i made this up myself i don't think it's the standard for proper spill recording <clears throat> but i thought if i space them apart enough then each other's reverb will have enough pre-delay so to speak so it doesn't cling to the source and it will sound more you know like a reverb but a bit separated so you have a bit more of a, a bigger space and a bit less kind of uh, clingy 
and maybe blurring reverb. But I think actually the standard for capturing spill and having things together in a room is actually to put them really close so you don't get actual appreciable timing issues when they're you know, like congas next to drum kits with just one baffle in the middle or something. So I've never done that before. I've always spaced them a bit further and it can get sloppy, but if the reverb is nice, it can be really nice actually. And it's free ambience. You don't have to put any room mics up. It's just on the, in the, in the closed mics basically. Um, <clears throat> but at the Schenk studio, there's a, it's pretty low ceiling. And so the natural acoustic in the room is a bit, a bit less, um, kind of free joy. So you have to work a little harder to have everything sit in a comfortable way. But I don't think we had a lot of spill in that studio. It's also a lot drier. And mm. uh, so it's it's easier to control. I mean, the records sound awesome. I love to li I mean, they're really fun to listen to. And just, and, you know, it, I mean, on one hand, if you, if you dive into them with this in mind, that's really interesting, but they're also just nice to listen to, you know, which I think is the whole point of music, right? So <laughs> Yeah, 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 for sure. For me, there's always this thing, especially with the Turkish music, they have, they put so much passion in their, in their, well, in their life, basically. It's like, it, as I know them, the Turkish in general are just very, very passionate people, a lot more passionate on the outside than the Dutch are, for instance. So in a way, it's always like, when you go there, like everything's big, and also I think the lyrics in the vocal, uh, in 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 the songs and stuff, it's all about big themes and big love and and big disaster, and everything is like heavy and melancholically beautiful, but also like very heavy and big. And so when we, when you listen to the vocals, for instance. They always have a crazy big reverb on them in the traditional songs, and the vocal is like very loud usually. Sometimes even pushing back the whole arrangement when they kick in. And um, I don't know if you if you appreciate this emotional response, then it's it's something I always try to, you know, I want to be touched in a similar way when you record it and. Uh, you have to make big moves to make that happen. Like it's not, you can't be too much on your toes, I think. Um, but when it happens and you put the big spring reverb or whatever it is, I'm still trying to figure out what they did because all those Turkish records have kind of a signature reverb. It's to me like very, like I think I know what it is roughly, but I've never really touched on it yet. So it's like an infinite quest. <laughs> uh, but... Mm. Yeah, if you have people like moving together in a room and then they have the, this big vocal with the reverb, you want it to like really hit you like a wave in a way. And um, um, it's it's something they sometimes <clears throat> they manage, you know, to do. It's not for every song and for every arrangement, but yeah, it, it does happen. And I must say also, I mean, just to be fair, for the last record, we actually, we finished the record and then <clears throat> we were really out of time for mixing and there was a full-on festival season like the catching up of COVID kind of schedule. So it was actually a pretty full summer 
and then we felt like uh, there's actually two songs that but I think Jasper was very particular about it. They felt like uh, they they should have had a bit more energy and a bit more liveliness. Seemed like we missed the energy a bit, and then we managed to uh, squeeze into the Timian Records studio in Helsinki uh, while we were there for for a festival, and uh, basically just on the in the morning made contact with them and uh by the time we landed we're on the phone with them and arranging you know possibilities and and in the afternoon we were setting up and in the morning we were recording and then we have to had to scramble out to um make the line check for the festival but that was a really nice studio experience for me at least which was so that th- might be also be a song that you've heard. I think, um, is it Kalki Lim is already out, I think? No, it's uh, Rakia Sukataman. Oh, Rakia, yeah. But that was uh, also from this session. And that was recorded um, in a way more similar to the old way we did it. So that was a track, but then uh, an Ampex 440 and a Trident 60, 65. All, all also almost all in one room and uh a lot crunchier and a lot more risky i think than the rest of the record but very very rewarding are you the live sound engineer as well yes mostly huh? yeah, yeah if i can i i am yes yeah i think that's interesting i mean usually they're separate right i mean it's like usually yes mm. yeah. yeah i mean i, I think that's I came makes a lot of sense yeah especially for the live more live uh, arrangements it works well and it's my background like that's how i grew into it so but the funny thing is when you when you're used to doing stuff live you're also a bit more used to making decisions on the on the spot i think and working on the time pressure and limitations and uh that was one of the cues for me to to see if i could actually do the studio thing in the way that i you know, appreciate music, which is usually late late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, which is very like a lot closer to a live experience in terms of you know performing mentality and uh, and just more limited tools, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, sessions used to be a day, like you would book a few hours. You know, people in the Crazy. you know there'd be a session, then you go in and you do the session, you record it, and that was the record. Like that was it. You know. Um, hmm. I recently uh, found uh, the Nancy Sinatra Instagram where she sh- shares uh, clips with Hunter Lee, who is mm. like taking apart her four-track masters, and they have these Lee Hazelwood produced songs with like full band, like almost like an orchestra. Sometimes two basses, you know, everything is there, and they do it live to four tracks in a matter of hours. And it completely blows my mind how great this sounds and how incredibly skilled those engineers, you know, had to be to make that happen. Yeah. I I can't really get my head around how you arrange and dial everything in, in that, in that type of production. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks guys. I I really appreciate your time today. It's nice to chat. (laughs) We'll talk soon. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Thank guys. You. Have a great Bye. day. Thanks Bye. so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapebop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. <laughs>